Hi, I'm Lara Bennett, and you're listening to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Cassell. Neil was a gifted singer, songwriter, musician, and friend to many. He released 14 albums as a solo artist and collaborated on countless projects with other musicians. After his passing in 2019, his friends and family created the Neil Cassell Music Foundation to provide instruments and music lessons to students in New York and New Jersey and to support organizations that offer musicians mental health care. One of the featured projects of the newly formed foundation is the tribute album, Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell, a sprawling 41-song collection bringing together a galaxy of rock and roots luminaries. We've asked the contributing musicians to share their memories of Neil and their stories of making the record. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell is out on November 12th. Pre-order the album and learn more about the Neil Cassell Music Foundation at neilcassellmusicfoundation.org. Hello, I'm Lara, and I'm here with Eric D. Johnson, a.k.a. Fruit Bats. Eric, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Great, thanks. So, Eric, you are an incredibly prolific musician, songwriter, and film scorer, and you've performed as Fruit Bats for over 20 years. You released music as EDJ, and you're also a part of Bonnie Light Horseman. And Neil is all over so many of your albums, adding his signature touch, and he plays on at least four of your records that I'm aware of. Does that sound about right? Yeah, let me think. I, I think Tripper was where he first came in. He played on my sort of self-titled Veering Off from Fruit Bats album, EDJ. He's on there. He was on absolutely, yeah, four, exactly. Wow, you counted well. <laughs> I needed to think about it. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's usually a couple songs on each too, which is really cool. So how did you first meet Neil? It had to be through Tom Monahan, who I don't know if you've spoken to him on here, but he and Neil were very close and kind of like weirdly like separated at birth, twins in some ways, not physically, but, uh, but emotionally, both kind of like... Uh, Southern California guys, but from New Jersey, who sort of had this like hybrid, hybrid vibe. They, I think they were the exact same age too. But anyways, I, yeah, through Tom, who had produced most of my records for the past decade, and is one of my closest friends. And so and I think it was I think his his Neil thing was through Beachwood Sparks from back in the day. So yeah, I think they, they were often the I'm sure you've been discovering through all these that they're the like, they laid the groundwork for so much of his world for the past 20 years. Yeah, they're absolutely a linchpin. It sounds like Tom very much is as well. Yeah. And, uh, I know that Tom and Neil were both real gear pedal heads. Yes, too. yes. Another, <laughs> another thing they had in common. 100%. Um, <laughs> did, did Tom recommend Neil or um, did he play something for you? And what made you want Neil to play on your records? I already knew Neil's stuff. I already thought he was super cool. So there was no recommendation necessary. And he, like Neil for me was like, um, he's a pretty unique dude in that he was like this kind of cool singer songwriter who had this like career in France. And there was a lot of like, like mystery and romance around him. And then he had become this like kind of ridiculously awesome in demand side guitar guy. And there's no, I don't know if anyone has that combo on their resume so yeah there was no recommendation necessary i think tom just mentioned it when we were making tripper and i was like yeah get him in here and uh he was just such a cool guitar player too because he was obviously amazing and had 
physical gifts in that realm, but also was a songwriter. So understood songs. So could could come in and was just with the utmost of sensitivity, play these guitar solos that like supported the story of the song. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any stories about those recording sessions when you'd come down and and uh, lay, layer in a track? I, I mean, I've been thinking about it all day and all morning of, of sort of just like, do I have stories? And in a kind of an awesome way, they all they all bleed into one because every time he would drive to LA from Ventura in his truck, it all like was kind of like felt like the same day, but it was over the course of 10 years and multiple sessions. He would always just drive in, park in Tom's driveway in his pickup truck, come and just in like two hours, just play the most beautiful stuff you've ever heard. So it was, it was always, he, he was kind of workmanlike in a way. It wasn't like some crazy session that we spent eight days on or something. It was, it was, uh, but I, I sort of liked that about him too. It was, it was sort of, he had sort of a working class, very New Jersey ethic with that. So it was, um, yeah, I remember one time him bringing a new guitar and I, uh, I have a terrible visual memory and, a, and I'm not a gearhead. So I don't remember what kind of guitar it was, but it was a guitar he'd purchased on eBay. And it was, uh, it had the picture of the previous owner in it, holding the guitar proudly. He'd purchased it and it, it like came from Detroit or something. And, and uh, he was very excited that there was also, was very excited that there was a Christmas tree in the background of the photograph too. It was a photo from like the seventies. Yeah, that's a, that's a distinct memory that I have of one of those. I feel like I, I have a recollection of reading something about this guitar and, and it was like uh, very much used in like a church band. Yes. That was it. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. I'm sure someone else maybe has that story too. I, I'm paraphrasing it horribly. It was actually an incredible story when he told it and now I'm not remembering it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I think just that in itself is really cool. Yeah. A little bit of history. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. And on um, Tripper, he's also credited as playing percussion, which I think is interesting because we, everyone knows Neil as a guitarist, but he also played all these other instruments. So I'm not sure exactly what he was playing, but it's neat that it was beyond that. Neil and Tom and I all shared a similar obsession with Shakers. And Tom and Neil would call it Shake Appeal, like the Stooges song. Um, <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that Neil did some Shake Appeal on that record. Like he, he and Tom, like in the studio together playing Shakers and probably me too. So I don't remember what percussion he played, but I'm I'm going to give you about a 99% guarantee that it was uh, Shakers of some kind. Right on. <laughs> So Eric, you chose to record Feathers for Bakersfield from for the tribute album, which is from the album Sweet in the Distance, which was um, produced by Tom. And I just love your version. It's so beautiful. So let's take a quick listen.
not your lover, don't pick up the phone. There's someone else already there to lay beside her. You waited long enough, now go on home. You wait tomorrow, but you'll still feel just as tired and alone. You wouldn't see nothing. recorded this entire thing yourself right i did yeah wow and you play all the instruments and i assume you recorded at home yeah i recorded it in my guest bedroom in la just uh looking out onto the back patio and uh yeah and i had i mean that was like it was uh it was like a you know a construct of pandemic times and uh i was like and i always do a ton in that room but i had um i had made an entire Fruit Bats album in there and then my Smashing Pumpkins cover album and, and, and that had become like this little space that before was just you know the guest bedroom and the like do little things in there but um so I think um my Feathers for Bakersfield was after a pretty like fertile time like I had gotten to know that weird little room after mm-hmm. a while after being locked in there for six months or however long it was. I can't even, I can't remember anything these days. Well, let's take a quick listen to a clip of Neil's version. You want to know why she had to go. You're not the only one who's looking for an answer. If she could tell you what you want to know. You wouldn't be here at all, so go and ask her. You ain't seen nothing until it turns around and leaves you. You see it coming until it finally catches up. 
How was your experience recording the song and how did you prepare for it? First of all, there was like the whole process of picking from a gigantic pile of songs. And then for a while, I think Bob Weir was going to have that song, which is really funny because I love Bob Weir and he's like my hero. So I was like, he can have whatever he wants and I'll, <laughs> I'll do whatever. But uh, that one, I mean, I just... I don't know if anyone ever told, this is another weird Neil story, which was like that he, this is like a very, Neil's maybe nine years older than me. So he, he's like, even from a slightly different era, but he was like, uh, has anyone ever talked about how he was a member of like the Graham Parsons fan club or something? No, no. And again, I'm just like, I, Tom probably knows this story better. I'm coming in with just the worst sixth hand anecdotes here, but um Neil was a member of some kind of like a Graham Parsons fan club, but this was like in the eighties or something before really before the rediscovery of Graham Parsons, I would say on a, on a large scale. And of course way pre-internet. So it was the type of thing where you he had to like go to some dude's house in Tampa who had like a collection of, 
Graham Parsons VHS tapes that they would watch. And it, it was essentially like a fan club. So basically, long story short, is Neil's, Neil's kind of like SoCal country bona fides went back really far, even though he's like a rock dude from New Jersey. He really like was into that stuff before anybody else was. So, and Feathers for Bakersfield just feels like such a, a Graham and Emmylou song to me and um, just handled with such such beauty and care, um, such a California song. Um, so that was, uh, that was always like one of my favorite sides of him. So, and it felt very coverable too, where like I could uh, sort of do something with it, keep true to it, but give it my own spin. It was just a language I knew, I think. Well, you definitely, you know, did a really incredible tribute. And uh, it's interesting that you are talking about Graham and Emily Lou because uh, I believe Amanda Shires does the harmonies on this song. So that's like a really sweet compliment. Um, they, you know, sing together really beautifully. Um, and that is a great story that he was in this fan club. I had no idea about that. Um, yeah, we're gonna have to do a sequel to this interview where I speak with Tom and or somebody who knows the story better. But it's it's a pretty hilarious story. It just involves a young teenage Neil going into some dude's house in Tampa, which sounds really kind of sketchy now. But <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to see those videotapes too as a big Graham fan. Me too. Whatever whatever those may be, I'm not even sure. So yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, a little bit of background about that song, and also kind of an interesting segue. Um, in the um, there's an interview in No Depression Magazine, uh, which is, you know, obviously an Americana kind of covering publication um, with Neil about Sweet in the Distance and uh, right after it was released. And he told the story of writing Feathers for Bakersfield. And he actually wrote it in his head while driving from Ventura to Sacramento like, the day before the Sweet in the Distance session started. Um, so he needed, he felt like he needed one last song. And the first time he played it was like the next morning for Tom and the guys that he was tracking with and he didn't know if it would work but obviously it did and here we are so yeah it's just like I think it's a very magical song and I I really enjoy your version of it that Um, I didn't actually know that story and it makes complete it has a very like and obviously he mentions Bakersfield in it too so it's it gets in your brain but it doesn't feel like uh he's not singing about some ancient Buck Owens Bakersfield it feels very like just contemporary that sort of drive that I've come to know very well between like LA and the Bay area or LA and Sacramento or something, which is like pretty boring, like on the, on the grand scheme of things. But um, there's still always something a little weird and romantic about it for me too, as dreary as it can be. But yeah, it feels like, even though he's actually singing about highway 99 and that, which would be the road, like through uh, Fresno and stuff, I guess. But um, it, it feels very like I five to me, just like, trying to get up to Oakland or something. And yeah, it has a, I I write while driving a lot, which very safely, mind you, I don't, I'm not like writing anything, but you know, with the voice memo or something. So I I love a, a real driving song. Yeah. Neil has a lot of stories too, in in podcasts and interviews about just listening to music and driving. So that's obviously a very powerful place to hear something or think of something. I think it's something about the rhythm of the road. Yeah. I don't, uh, I actually barely listen to music at home i can't it's very hard for me to listen to music stationary uh yeah driving that's often my best excuse to listen to a bunch of music and i do a lot of driving so yeah right <laughs> yes 
same. On that note, um, you have been, you know, a musician for a very long time and you've been on the road a lot. So how do you take care of yourself while you're on the road? That's a good question. I mean, I haven't been on the road like long stretches for a while. So I, I don't even remember. Um, I don't know. I'm a pretty moderate and temperate uh, and tempered person. So um, I, uh, and just, you know, after this, you just have to pace yourself after this long. So I don't, I don't know. Like the, I mean, the thing that gets me on the road is like, it's not so much like the driving or the travel. It's the like, you know, we fruit bats, we play like 90 minute sets and I'm just singing like as loud as possible for 90. That That's always the thing that gets me. So vocal rest is good. Hydration, you know, the usual pacing yourself. That's a good tip. Hydration yeah. is very, very important and something yeah. we often yeah. forget about. Yeah, I do. And I have to like really force myself to do it. So can you tell me a little bit about what the mission of the Neil Cassell Music Foundation means to you? I mean, it's like mental health in in music is and and the arts is uh it's a thing because it's um the it's it's sort of a lethal combination of of people who are probably naturally hardwired sensitive and and these these kind of very electric personalities who are um sort of living on the outer fringes of the universe sometimes emotionally and otherwise and and of course able to tap tap themselves into these magical realms too, but that often comes with a side of depression and <laughs> craziness and, and like, and for some people, um, substance abuse and whatever. So it's like, we, we kind of, we need these people around <laughs> and like, we need them to be weird, weird and dark sometimes too. So yeah, I think like, I'm, I'm probably digressing off onto some tangent here, but, um, just saying that like, uh, yeah, we we need we need a crop of of weird depressives to sing songs to us, but we need to keep them alive. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's a weird answer, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you're right, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, we l- listeners channel you know their own feelings through through music, and the people making it often like have to feel really hard to constantly be like digging in, and that can take its toll for sure. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Eric, what are your favorite songs of yours that Neil played on? I mean, all of them, which I could probably list like on two hands or something, but it's like he, he plays a solo on a song called Shivering Fawn. thing he played on but um we were doing a lot of like direct guitars and uh he channeled some kind of very like david gilmore kind of vibe on that one which is really really cool but he's also on banishment song on that record which actually dave schools 
messaged me, was like listening to that song and was like, was that Neil? And I was like, yep. And he's like, he said, I recognize the patience, which I thought was a cool uh, way of describing his playing. And then Neil plays on my song, My Sweet Midwest on Absolute Loser and does like a totally different thing and just like, just plays this like such amazing kind of like Heartland kind of Mike Campbell-y guitar or something. You know, he could kind of like, he, he spoke all those languages really well, like was just always very big eared as they say, as far as like what the song needed. And yeah, like most of that stuff is kind of like one or two takes. which is Mandy from Mohawk. And I think that's like a really primo example of his playing because it's like, it just starts out like a very subtle, you know, guitar line that you, you don't even think about until you're like, wow, this is like so beautiful. And then you're like, oh, it's Neil. So that's yeah, a, Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's the last thing he did with me in the last day that I saw him too. So. you 
yeah, so that one, I, I think of him often when I hear that. That's definitely the most special one of all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, Eric, do you have any other stories or memories about Neil that you'd like to share? No, I mean, I think that's like, yeah, it's, it is amazing. It just, it keeps dawning on me how like the actual amount of hours we spent in the studio together was, was so minimal and how much stuff we got out of it. So yeah, it's, it seems, seems very epic, but it's a testament to how, how well he could just kind of come in and, and just be, just be a total workhorse. Well, I think I have told you this, but one of the last times that I saw Neil, I was like, hey, your your record, Gold Past Life, had just come out. And I was like, which which songs did you play on? And he said, Mandy, and um, I think it's Gold Past Life. Yeah, and, Gold Past Life. Yeah, and I was like, you know, it's like such a beautiful record. And he was like, yeah, it's it's incredible. So he he really loved it, too. I know. He was always, it, it, so many people, I, I do talk to so many people because we came from overlapping worlds, but also divergent worlds. And, and like he, he brought so many people from his world who were like fans of his bands and stuff who maybe wouldn't have uh, discovered my music otherwise have said like Neil sent me. So I, I get that a lot. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I can fill in the Graham Parsons story. Oh my gosh. I know you probably know this. Apologies for the construction going on, but um, that's okay. uh, Neil and I were obsessed with Graham Parsons. So Neil's dad, for a while lived in Florida. And we heard about this place called Graham's Place. It actually was a hostel and it's still there. If you look okay. up Graham's Place Hostel, it's there. And it was run by a guy that Neil became really good friends with. Like you said, he was older than Neil. Uh, his name was Mark Holland. And he was just a huge Graham fan. And he'd spent time traveling around Europe and stayed in hostels all the time. So he decided to create a hostel in Tampa, where he lived, that was a Graham Parsons themed hostel. And so he had all this memorabilia and it, and um, it was really special. And it wasn't so much a fan club, but they had like a fanzine, like a newsletter, so that there was always, it, it, I have one still. It's in all my, I have one and Neil, Neil had a whole pile of them and the stuff that he left behind these little like mimeographed fanzines that they used to give him and send to me as well, Mark. And there was a, his friend, close friend, Brenda was, became one of Neil's really close friends and she lived out in the Joshua tree. And I hate to say this and tragically, they both died of suicide. Oh man. Yeah. Mark in 2007 and Brenda must have been a couple years after that. And uh, Brenda's death really affected Neil, too. Um, but because he was really close to them, they would come to shows. We tra- like we, we saw them quite a bit in those years. And when you mentioned that, I was like, damn, I haven't thought about that in a while. Well, the way I described it, I feel bad now just being like, yeah, it was like some weird dude's house or something. But <laughs> I think Neil kind of described it that way jokingly and was like, I could have been murdered. Like the <laughs> like the, the, the beginning of it, of just like that. It was more the funny thing of like, back in those, you know, now it's like some weird person on a Reddit forum or something, but yeah. Neil was just like, yeah, I was like this young, handsome kid just going into some possible mass murderer's house, but it obviously all worked out great and they all, all became friends. Yeah, there was a friend of ours who had a record store, like who had tons of bootlegs and, and stuff like that. And he was like, oh yeah, that guy, Mark Holland, like he's got everything Graham's ever done. He I want a recording of Graham vomiting in the desert in 1971, <laughs> he's got it. <laughs> we wow. used to say that for years. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, we we really went through a Graham phase. Actually, if you uh, if you look it up, if you Google it, Mark Holland Graham Parsons film, you can still see this. I think on uh, he made a film called The Legend of the Grievous Angel, and it was just like a bunch of uh, weird Graham footage that he somehow found and and uh, and crammed together. And that that's the VHS tapes that that Neil was talking about. Um, but if you look up that, I think it's still out there. I think you can find it. I'm definitely going to watch that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was, uh, the, that was amazing. We were, we were obsessed with Graham for a long time. Yeah. I still and why him. not? Yeah. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks you guys. Thanks Harry. Thanks, thanks y'all. Bye. Okay. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by backline, the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. Launched in 2019, Backline gives artists, crews, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. Backline provides individuals with case management and offers virtual support groups as well as yoga, meditation, and breath work. To donate, learn more, or get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. That's B A C K L I N E. Dot C-A-R-E. Thanks for listening to Highway Butterfly and the stories of Neil Casal. Tune in next week to hear more from the artists who made this tribute album a reality. Highway Butterfly The Songs of Neil Casal is out on November 12th. All album net proceeds go to the Neil Casal Music Foundation. You can pre-order the album and learn more at neilcasalmusicfoundation.org. Osiris.